Chris Thorpe here is going to talk us through ArtsFinder and, and he's also got some extremely interesting things to say about the thinking process that led them to, uh, to creating this app. Thanks, Chris. Cool. Um, hopefully, yay, we're winning. That's great. So I'm not going to tell you much about ArtFinder um, and I'm not going to tell you much about our app necessarily. What I'm going to try and do is talk to you about the principles that go in there. And importantly, there's one really key thing, which is about users. And I think it's something that was, no disrespect, was missing from what you were saying. You were coming at it very much from the art organization's point of view. And actually, the one thing that we all have to realize in this world is that the way our content is consumed and the way our apps are consumed is by users who have no idea what our intention is and will put their frame onto it and their focus onto it. So the key thing that we have to do is to actually understand users more than necessarily we understand our own content. And so that's a lot of what, about what I want to talk to you about. There are three real bits to do with ArtFinder um, as a service. One is to do with recommendations, and it's a, a website that hopefully some of you have seen. If not, please go and have a play, tell us what it's like. We want to make it better all the time. Where we want to try and get people more engaged in art, get to find more things that they really love. And then there's apps, and it's very exciting being here today because actually over the weekend, Apple approved the first one of our apps. And I say the first one of our apps because actually there's three more in the queue in the App Store, there's three more going in this week, and then there's a floodgate going in after then. And I'll come back to that in a minute. And then the other thing is thinking about, well, actually, what can we do to change audio guides? How can we make audio guides a bit more personable, a bit more about you? And there's one principle... Um, and I'm going to smile at Rachel in the front here because she asked me to give a talk a while ago about um, what we were thinking about. And I was talking about this one principle of actually we kind of need to see through the walls of museums. That's what users need to do with all of our things. They need to look through and go, is there anything in there that I like? Is there anything there that might appeal to me? Why would I go there? Everyone in this room has their aims as to why people should come through their door. And those aims are completely different to individual people and individual users. And I'm not suggesting we all go and move our museums into Farnsworth houses, but we just need to think about how do we get the walls to disappear and for people to understand us more. To give you some examples, if you look at the outside of the National Gallery, you might have preconceptions about what it has in it. You might think it's all about very much old masters, there might be nothing in for you, but it's got a great collection of Impressionist work. Recently, the Guggenheim in Bilbao, which you might see as a very modern artist, has a great exhibition about... Dutch and Flemish master paintings. Tate Modern, which lots of people from the general public think is only about cutting-edge contemporary, when it opened had a really beautiful Monet water lily picture juxtaposed against a great work by Richard Long. You wouldn't know these things from looking at museum websites. And this isn't a diss at the National Gallery at all. It's a great website. But what none of these services really do is bend themselves around the user. They don't really put the user right at the middle of everything. And I want to illustrate one site which I think does, which is very silly and very frivolous. It's called Owls Near You. And it does one thing, and one thing really, really well. You give it your postcode, and it will tell you where your nearest owls are. And this was made by some of the team at ArtFinder to sort of explore some thinking. And we're trying to do a similar thing with art. Is, you know, people know their postcode. They don't necessarily know what art they want to go and see. They don't necessarily know what art's in individual museums. But they just give you that one thing, and you can then start to open up the world for them. 
then you're doing a really great thing. So number one thing, absolutely think about users. Um, so I always describe myself as somebody who makes things. And this is sort of roughly what I use to make things. Lots of paper and pencil, lots of devices, music, lots of tea. Um, there's one key thing about making things. And actually, what I was doing whilst the other presentation run is a key example of this. Test everything on a real device. If I hadn't tested the projector at the start, my slides would have been really squished and really small, and you'd hardly be able to read them at the back because I didn't know how the projector was going to react to my laptop. And it's the same with all of these devices that are in people's hands. Here's the next point. Play with them. Your friends have all got different devices. Sit and play with them. Um, we have quite a lot of devices in the office. Um, and actually, recently, we've been playing with them a lot more, or at least I have, because my son, my youngest son, dropped my iPhone in a cup of coffee. And it didn't work anymore. So instantly, I had to go and test all these other things. And it was wonderful. When he's old enough, I'll thank him for it. So it actually made me play with all these things and understand them in a very different way. And coming back to users who hold these things in their hand, and this is why we have to think about users so carefully. They're intimately attached with these things, physically and in terms of their world is on them, increasingly. So you have a much more personal relationship to this than you do to these things. Because it's with you all the time, you use it all the time, you hold it all the time, it has your loved one's pictures and numbers on it. It's an entirely different emotional connection than we've ever had with computing devices before. And we think there are different modes that users inhabit and different things that we need to think about when we're actually building things for users. So the first one is to do with time and space. And I'll unpick these all as we go. The second one is to do with distraction. We need to think about a lot about size and physicality. We think about context, expendability, and finishability of what we make. And let's go through them. So size is really obvious in lots of ways. They're all different shapes and sizes. But there's a great um, scientist. I used to be a research scientist back in the dim and distant past. And this man was one of my heroes, J.B.S. Haldane. And he wrote a really beautiful essay called On Being the Right Size. And he talks about the, the most obvious differences between animals is actually not what they are. It's actually their size. And yet it's very rarely discussed. But actually, for every type of animal, there's a most convenient size. And a large change in size inevitably carries with it a change in form. This has a similar screen resolution to this. And yet you hold them differently, you use them differently, they do different jobs for you. You take them to different places. And it's even more stark and apparent with lots of small phones that are appearing now. So we need to think about this when we're starting to build for them. Then we need to think about context. And actually, coming back to size, it's one really important thing, which is accessibility. So we're thinking a lot about what people do in galleries with these things. And uh, we're all in this room, fortunately, fairly well able-bodied from the look of it. My mother has rheumatoid arthritis. And some devices are either too big for her hand and cause her pain, or they're too heavy. And certainly, if you look at tablets, most of them aren't 4 by 3 like the iPad. They're actually long and thin. And what that means is they have a totally different tilting moment. And so if you've got arthritis, you find that they pull your wrists as you carry them around. When we start to think about people carrying these devices around galleries, 
we have to think about how people hold them. Where are they going to carry them? Even if you've got a seven-inch tablet, you need really big pockets to put a seven-inch tablet in. Are you going to give people a neck strap? What are you going to do with it? So before you start imagining these futures, you have to start thinking about the realities. And that comes on to context. How are people holding them? Because the way people hold them relates to how you design for the interface. So if I'm holding this with both hands, and this is again something to do with the big 10-inch tablets, my thumbs don't meet in the center. I've got reasonably large hands. And also, there's a really important dimension that's never really talked about, which is pixels per fingertip. So how big is my finger in relation to the thing? What do I obscure when I'm trying to tap things? And have I made all the hit zones too small? So those are sort of the physical things to think about. A really important thing to think about, I think, a lot is, is expendability. What do I mean by that? Well, I think we're at the cusp of something really important, which is I think we're getting really, really close to peak work-life phone and being balance, where we're going to get really, really fed up with our devices constantly pestering us. Um, there's a really great writer and technologist called Tom Armitage, who I really admire. And he wrote a lovely blog post about uh, the fact that Kindles are really polite house guests. Because they don't bleep at you, they don't flash, they don't vibrate. They sit there, and the difference between their on state and their off state is really quite minimal. So we need to think about this as we're creating these things. Don't constantly make people's phone buzz. It's annoying. Stop it. Um, and one really important thing about expendability is thinking about how long will I last as a device. And we have to think, when we're commissioning them, where we're creating them, that these aren't going to be perpetual, everlasting things that are going to be there forever. Fail fast, fail cheap, build small things, experiment, learn from them. If you spend hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands on something that only stays on somebody's device for a few minutes, is that really the best use of your funding? And that brings us on to another thing, which is finishability. So I spent a while in the newspaper industry, uh, The Guardian, and the thing that we discovered most when we asked people about what they loved about the print paper compared to the online paper was that they could finish it. They could finish it, they could go through everything, it was great. You can't finish the internet. And, and I sort of then started thinking about you know, things like this. And actually, if you think about it, the weekend edition of the New York Times is actually something you need two-player cooperative mode to get through. It's huge, it's barely finishable. And if you start thinking about the games within finishing things, you realize that you do everything. And then the things that art organizations do brilliantly, and newspapers do brilliantly, like curation and juxtaposition, come into the play, and you get that wonderful thing of serendipity. So if we make finishable things that people can enjoy, then we'll make things that they'll discover more out of if we let curation take its place. And we think a lot about radio to do with this. Radio does something really, really interesting, which we think is an important pattern to do with apps and engagement, which is this. You need to get people to go offline and online and offline and online and offline and online all the time. At each point, you need to understand where they are in the cycle and bring them back and push them there and bring them back. So it could be they discover a new gallery, they go to it, they tell you they like it, you recommend them another one, they go to it, things like that. Keep them going all the way around. They like a painting. Tell them another one that's in the same building. It's a really important thing. We're trying to work out the magic quadrant for this, but we can't quite. So at the moment, we've got our sketchy idea of what are the important things. So we think there are three sections to it. Time and space, distracting people, mission control. 
We have no idea what the percentages are. I totally made those up. So, time and space, what is it? It's all about this. Where am I? When am I? What's here? What else is here? Who's here? What should I be doing? Things like Foursquare, really interesting for that. What's it look like in a gallery? We don't know exactly yet, but this is what we're thinking. We think it's about finding out about the art around you. And occasionally I give talks where I talk about having a little angel hovering behind you. This angel that sort of whispers in your ear about bits of art and tells you things that you never knew about the artist, about when it was painted. And one thing I really don't want for this is augmented reality in galleries. And I think part of that is because I hate seeing people wandering around galleries doing that. And I really hate the idea that the way that we engage with culture is actually through a, another screen, rather than through actually just looking around. So we've been doing some rather unscientific ethnographic analysis of what people do in galleries with devices. So lots, I should actually say, I was actually nearly stopped from photographing people rather than art in MoMA, which is quite an interesting experience. Um, so they take lots of pictures of pictures. Not necessarily to infringe copyright. When you talk to them and you ask them what they're doing, they say, actually, I'm trying to remember. I'm trying to remember what I've seen. Or they're remixing. Or occasionally you see them doing this sort of thing, where they're photographing gallery labels. And so what we really want to do, and what we're thinking, is that we want to build them a flight data recorder for gallery visits. So something where you can go along and you can take a photograph of something and you'll find a match and it'll tell you about it. And we're doing lots of stuff with image recognition about this at the moment, because that feels like the most natural way. And the red circles are indicators that we put on a picture that was taken with a camera phone, and then we've matched them against a master original we've got. And we're still testing this, but we're getting to about 90% accuracy in the office, and we're sort of playing with it in galleries where we can to get it really, really accurate before we get people to play with it and take it around. But there's one key thing in everything we're doing on the iPhone, which is getting people to look at art, not screens. So we feel that's the right way for it to be. And the technology should just get out of the way of this interaction. So it should be really quick. This is the information. Here's some more you might want to know. Off we go. I had a meeting recently where somebody asked me how to do Zoom in a gallery app on a phone. And my rather glib answer, which I still stand by, is get them to walk towards the painting. Tell them maybe which bit of the painting to look at, but get them to walk towards the painting. So I think we're going to get to a point, and this is part of the peak thing, where so many people will be wandering around galleries staring at their screens that you'll hardly be able to walk around and see the art. And I'd really hate it if I made something that made that worse. So once you've got this flight data recorder, then you need this mission control bit, which is actually these sorts of questions like that. You can have some more. Where can I find this? I didn't know about that. My friend likes them. And that's where the website comes in. So we start recommending you things. We start saying, here are more works by this painter, even if they're not in the same gallery. Or here's some more artists that you might like. And here's some things that I've collected or liked on Facebook or whatever. And recently, we added another bit of mission control. This is uh, Dennis Crowley from Foursquare. And he showed a slide at a Guardian conference, said, wouldn't it be lovely if I could put a thing on a page that was next to a piece of art that said, add to my to-do list. Um, so this goes live in about a day's time. And you can now add galleries and works of art to your to-do list. And then when you get near to them, like I did in New York when we were testing, it says, you need to go and see the portrait of the postman at MoMA. 
And so what we're doing is we're sort of giving people hints about what they might want to do in the real world. So it's that offline, online, offline, online sort of thing again. The other thing that we think is really important is getting people to buy prints or buy works of art. And that's how we hope to monetize this, and this is how we hope to monetize it for the galleries too. But the key end goal for it is actually this sort of map, which is if we know the things you like, we can tell you the galleries that are most likely to be interesting to you. So we can try and drive you around cities. So for instance, this is my personal like map from Madrid. And the size of the circle relates to how many things there are that I might like in there. And the color of the circle relates to how connected they are to the things that I already tell the database that I like. So it very clearly shows you that I should spend my time in the rain Sophia, which is a good test, because that's where I like to go. On to distraction. We see this all the time. Look around you next time you're on the tube and see if you can count how many people don't have a device they're staring at. And if they don't have one, are they reading a paper or a book? It's all about distraction. And it's these sorts of mechanisms. Bored, stuck here, I want some fun. And at the moment, they do lots of these sorts of things. Well, they do stuff with Kindle. And the closest thing to what we think is really interesting is this thing that The Guardian made. Um, called Eyewitness, where you can look at really beautiful photographs about news events every day. And you get a new one every day. And you start discovering news events through it. And when we start thinking about distraction, we obviously start thinking about radio, because radio is one of these great distraction mechanisms. And what I tend to think about is this gentleman here, John Peel, um, who for me was one of the greatest distraction machines ever, in that I love to show, and I, I always felt that the time that it was on was somehow compressed because I enjoyed it so much. But he was also great because he was this wonderful serendipity machine. He had the whole world of demo tapes around him. And he then knew a lot about his audience, and so he picked the ones that he thought would appeal to them. And he knew a lot about his musical taste, so he picked those ones. And because you had this sort of show that had all this curation in, you had incredible serendipity. And the interesting thing is that everybody nowadays think that, thinks that radio is this continuous stream. But it's really not. It's actually short, really highly curated bursts which start and most importantly finish. It's back to this concept of finishability. And so when we've thought about iPad apps, that's what we've decided to do. We're making finishable iPad apps. So this is the first one that's in the App Store. It's the Cast Sculpture Foundation. And it's about an artist and about eight works of art that are being displayed down there. So it's highly finishable. It's highly doable from their perspective as an art organization. And it's highly finishable from a user's perspective. Um, at the moment, the iPad version's out. But we're actually building it at the same time for all of these different stores. So we've got Playbook, Android, the Nook, and also WebOS. And what we thought we'd do is learn from what happens in the real world. So people display art in white cubes because they want the works to be the important thing. And so that's what we've done. We're just showing the works, a tiny toolbar at the top. If you want some more information, you tap on it, and you get the information. And I'll try it on here with the caveat that this is possibly the worst experience for an iPad app ever. Um, but it's fun. So first of all, we're polite to people. We say, we'd like to learn how you use it. Is that OK with you? You say yes or no, up to you. And what we then do is we then just give you a flick through of works. And you can turn the information off, 
and you just flick. There's nothing magical or different about it. It's just trying to make it as easy as we can for people to enjoy stuff. And then when there's something you really want to find out more about, you can just scroll through the information. You can like it, and that sends the like up onto the ArtFinder service. Or you can share it with your friends, either by email or Facebook. And I won't go and try and do the Facebook thing on here, because obviously I'll then expose my password to all of you, no doubt. And that would be embarrassing. Um, for us, the most important thing about all of this is actually how do we get people to visit this place? And this is something that I feel is far too missing from lots of mobile phone apps. They don't have a map, which is very strange, because these devices always have maps. So you just touch it, and up comes the map, and it tells you exactly where you need to go. And you can route from where you are. So they're designed to be really, really simple. If I switch back to the slides now, I'll, I'll talk a bit more about them. <clears throat> so I've shown you all this, so I don't need to show you more. Um, we can add in biographies. We've tried where we can to keep it as pure and clean and simple as we can. We're great believers in reductionist design. It's why the iPad works much better than Android tablets. If you play with an Android tablet, you'll realize that everyone has thrown the kitchen sink at it. If you play with an iPad, you realize how much, probably through shouting from Steve Jobs and Jonathan Ives, loads has been removed from the experience, so it becomes really easy to do. The real key thing is actually about not reinventing wheels. So we think that rather than reinvent them each time you want to make an app, you should actually have a factory. And so what we've done with this factory, so here's the page for Biomorphia in the iTunes store, is we've used this thing called PhoneGap, which I think was briefly alluded to earlier. It's um, a wrapper layer for HTML5. But the great thing is if you use PhoneGap, you can actually get the accelerometer, the camera, device-specific information, geolocation, network, media. We've built a Facebook library that we've open sourced, so you can actually put Facebook in there. We're doing the same thing with Twitter and Foursquare. So you can actually do everything you would otherwise do in a native app. And that allows us to hit all of these platforms really easily. So that's Apple, Android, BlackBerry, Palm, Windows Phone 7, and I can't remember what the last one is. I really should learn. The other key thing about the way we've done it is that as soon as we built it in HTML5, we can build really simple production systems. So building one app's fun, but actually building lots and lots and lots and lots of them is more fun. And what's slightly more fun is that if you think about it, everybody is going to build a Monet app, or some commercial company will do. And probably lots of commercial company will build Picasso apps because there's a clear market. And there are probably lots of people, when they sort the rights out, will build Hertz apps or Gormley apps. And it's great that these things will happen. But actually, there are a large number of other painters, like, for instance, Ibrahim El-Salahi, who are building some apps for, who won't have apps made for them. So what we've done is we've actually created a platform where people can come and make their own apps, because we feel that then democratizes the level playing field a bit more. Because we've built it as a platform, it means that other people can come and do the same thing. And as a little joke, we called our platform Fountain. Um, some people might say it's a dangerous thing, calling your platform after a urinal. Um, but we think it's all to do with the idea that we're creating a ready-made. And the artist then comes and puts themselves into it. So how does it work? It's very simple. At the moment, it's quite ugly as well. We've got a designer working on it at the moment. You fill in forms on a website. 
And then you say, I want to add some images for the front page, and I want to move sections up and down. And then you say, actually, I want to add in images of works. And then you press a button, and off it goes. And I'm going to do that most dangerous things you can ever do in a presentation and show you it. So here it is in all its uh, Helvetica-esque glory. It's very, very simple. You can add things to and remove them from the front page. You can go and manage the images in there. You can add some. You can take them away. We wanted to make it obscenely simple for galleries to use. That's not so they're not technical, but they should spend their time thinking about the content and about users. And so the way that you upload the data to it is CSV files and Excel spreadsheets. And so you can go and see what the current data is for it. Tried to make it very, very simple. And it builds apps for iPad, Nook, the BlackBerry Playbook, running out of space here, Motorola Zoom, which has got a really, really big screen. And it lets you test them all before you actually get them onto a device. And at the end of it, you can then hoover all the stuff down, wrap it in PhoneGap, build your app, or we can do it for you. Now, one of the things that we think is really, really important is that technology gets demystified. The thing that annoys me most as a technologist is acronyms. Um, I can program in lots of programming languages, but I don't necessarily like telling you what they are. I'd far rather tell you that we made a thing that lets you make iPad apps, because that's far more interesting. And I think there's far too much smoke and mirrors that happens around the making of these things. And what we really want to do is, by creating a platform, and a platform where it's easy to see the output. We're kind of returning control to people. That's what we want to do all the time. And the key thing about making a web platform is if you want to create this app, you don't necessarily need a device to do it. You should always have a device to play with to test on, but you don't. You, can just, you, you don't necessarily need you to, to use one to make it in the first place. You just use a web browser, go to a website, create it, preview it in the browser, and then when you're ready to publish it, you either do it yourself or you tell us that you're doing it. And there's one final thing I'd like to say, and it comes back to expendability. And for me, this is the most important thing that all of us have to think about, which is you're not the only thing in a person's life, and neither are your apps. So bring them some joy and some wonder. Don't pester them, and they'll hopefully want you in it for a while, and they'll enjoy it and then hopefully they'll want you in it some more. And that's how we try to think about apps. Thank you very much. <laughs>